Welcome to the Equipping Podcast. My name's Karen Hinson, and today I'm hosting alone. Yay! <laughs> today, our guest is Dr. Nathan Wagnon. Hello. <laughs> hey, you still intro the same way. Nothing's different. It's almost uh, as yeah. if we are still co-hosting. Yeah, that's right. Well, Nathan, why are we interviewing you today? Oh, maybe because we've totally lost our minds. <laughs> we've run out of cool people <laughs> to invite. <laughs> we talked to all the cool people in the world, and now it's just me. Yeah, if you know anybody uh, better than Nathan, <laughs> email us at a that's a, uh, that's a long list yeah. of people. So today we're interviewing Nathan <laughs> uh, because he has just spent the last how long, many years? A long time. Years of his life multiple yeah. years of his life, uh, working on his doctoral degree. And he has just finished and is about to go celebrate and graduate. And yeah. we want to know what you've learned. We need to learn your wisdom. And so <laughs> yeah, right. let's take just a few minutes and just summarize what the project was. What did you write on? Why did you choose this topic? You thought it would be really helpful to the church. And so just give us insight as to why this topic was the one that you decided to spend so much of your time on. Yeah. You know, the, the doctoral process is an interesting one. So I, I got my doctorate of ministry from Biola University out in Los Angeles, and the way they set it up, you spend three years doing like coursework. And so you go out in the summer times for two weeks and do like a summer intensive where you sit in a classroom with the rest of the cohort guys and gals. And during that time, you're learning and your view on discipleship and spiritual formation is deepening and growing and being challenged and all that stuff. And so then toward the end of the last year, you have to pick a topic to research and write on. And I remember how very vividly I was going to do something like a study on the life of Christ and, and then take people through that and basically measure like, hey, do people grow through this kind of curriculum or whatever? Mm. It was like a because it has to be since it's a practitioner's degree, it's a, it has to be practical. But one of the days uh, somebody uh, actually Dr. Betsy Barber came in and she took us through this exercise that basically measured how we emotionally relate to God. How do we psychologically image him? And then how do we emotionally relate to that psychological image that we have of him? Can you give us an example of psychologically imaging? Yeah, we'll get into this more as we talk. But basically, there is an objective reality who is God. He exists whether we think about him or not. An easy way to think about it is like, you're Karen Henson. You are Karen Henson. There is an objective, material human being that is Karen. But then everybody has their own mental picture of who you are. That's scary. Yeah. <laughs> and the reality is there's one actual Karen Henson, right. and then there's as many Karen Hensons as people who know you. Right. Right. So but those are not me. Those are not. Right. Exactly. Okay. Each one of them represents you, and some of them are fairly accurate, Others of them are not based right. on experiences or... So people do the exact same thing with God. And so this woman comes in and leads you through this exercise that helps you see how you're imaging God. That basically sh like pushes that distinction in your face. Okay. And you're like, oh, dang. And I remember I was kind of a wreck after that exercise. I, we took a break and I like left the building and kind of walked around a little bit and was just like, wait a minute. Because I'd never really like... If somebody had explained that to me, I'd have been like, oh, yeah, of course, you know, but it had never like my actual mm. 
image of God had never been shoved in my face like that. Right. It was and conceptual up to yes, that point. Yes, that's right. And so at that point I knew I was like, I need to work on this. For yourself? Or yeah, or absolutely. Just knowing no, was... ab- absolutely. Yeah, for myself. Mm. Because, I mean, real ministry is not something that's like removed from your own personal experience. I mean, the what? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, I knew I needed to work on it. And uh, so I started researching. And when I first started researching, I dug into a lot of psychoanalysis. So, uh, psychology, psychoanalysis, there's a lot of. There's literature about that. And I, I mean, it was like I had left earth and was on a different planet. You know, I mean, I, I'm a theologian by training. All of my degrees are in biblical studies and theology and languages and stuff like that. So I start delving into this other world and it was tough sledding. I mean, it was a lot of like, I think I know what's going on, but maybe not. And then the more I started reading and digging in, the more like I had these eureka moments where I was like, oh, like that's what you're talking about. And so at the end of the day, what I did was I wrote a basically a theological foundation for how psychoanalysis and spiritual formation, the theological foundation for it, how those integrate. And then I built an assessment out of that to take a focus group here at Watermark through an exercise. Actually, it's a series of exercises to reveal their psychological image of God and how they emotionally relate to it. So that's the kind of 30,000 foot view of it. And if you're listening out there going, what did he just say? (laughs) (laughs) Karen's been through it, so she can tell you. Yeah, we're about to get into the details of it. So you just mentioned that you wrote about the theological foundation behind all of this. And Mm. so help us understand a little bit more about what scripture says about this, how people are spiritually formed, what experiences play into how they relate to God, some of those things. Unpack what you learned in that theological assessment of this. So uh, chapter one of my paper deals with kind of how the human brain works. There's a neurobiological side to this because... I mean, like I like to say sometimes, like, have you ever tried to think without your brain? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> and the, hopefully the answer is no. I mean, so there's a neurological side of this that how we take in information, how that information is mapped in our brain. And is, what's really crazy is how the formative years of our lives, the map of our world is like seared on our brains and they literally form what are known as neural pathways. They're like ruts in a road and the neurons that are firing down those neural pathways will take just like you would on a road when you're driving. Like if you're kind of like next to the rut, then eventually you're probably going to just like slip into it, you know? And it's a similar deal with our brains. So if experiences happen with people and the way that they view the world is formed by their own brokenness, by their own environment that is in some ways secure and in other ways is insecure, and they begin to have these experiences, both positive and negative, your brain is literally like molding to those experiences. In other words, the neurons are going down these neural pathways and they're going to naturally follow the ones that are already formed. Mm. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, and so just to make it a little more practical for our listeners, for instance, you have a very young daughter. So mm-hmm. how old is she? How old is Jules? Oh, Baba Jules. <laughs> Daddy loves the Baba Jules. Uh, she'll be two next week. She'll be two. And so as she is growing, uh, her brain is literally being transformed mm-hmm. and uh, she is experiencing the good, the bad, the ugly. Uh, as she continues to age, she'll experience things like uh, joys from getting good grades on her papers mm-hmm. and maybe she'll be bullied and that'll be a hard thing. And then she continues to walk through positive and yep. negative experiences, both related to her parents and not related to her parents yep. that are forming her. That's right. And it's a very physical formation in your brain. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Your brain is literally forming based on those experiences. The One of the things that's really important that I've found in my research that's played itself out practically as I've interviewed a bunch of people about this is that typically positive experiences, unless they're like overwhelmingly positive, it's easier for us to forget those. And the reason that is, is because when you have an experience, you experience things in an embodied way. I mean, the brain stem, which includes the spinal cord all the way, and then the spinal cord is attached to the rest of your body. So you have an experience like, uh, say, I don't know, riding a roller coaster or something like that. That's like, you know, you remember that because it's a more intense experience. And for positive experiences, there's a part of your brain that's called the hippocampus, And the hippocampus is basically, think of it like a puzzle piece assembler. You have all these pieces scattered on the table, and the hippocampus is the thing that that shows up and says, hmm, I'm going to put these together like this. And then once they're assembled, then it'll send it up to the higher portions of your brain where they're integrated together, and it just forms like a mental map that you don't even think about. It makes me think of the movie Inside Out. Yeah, 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 totally, totally. Where it brings up these experiences and this one's joyful and this one's fearful and this one's sad and it puts it all together in a day's experiences. Is that a legitimate picture? That's the hippocampus. Yeah, Yeah, we'll send it up and, you know, that's the engine that's firing. However, the only place that that metaphor falls apart is in negative experiences, there is a portion of your brain called the amygdala. The amygdala is basically your fight, flight, freeze it's the part that literally kicks up your adrenaline, squirts a hormone on your brain. And now all of a sudden you're either fighting or you're freezing or you're running away. Right. And when that happens, what the amygdala does is it diminishes the hippocampal ability to integrate experiences. So the residual, the leftover, you only remember that negative part of it. Yes. Okay. Exactly. And it doesn't get integrated into your higher capacity to think and integrate information together. And so it just lives there. Mm. It lives there like underneath your consciousness. So we can look back at our past and the things that are going to make the biggest impression on us, the Mm. things that we're going to remember the most are those experiences marked by that fight, flight, freeze. Yeah, because it's never been integrated into the rest of the mental map that you have. Got it. It's kind of like something that's underneath the surface and you kind of know it's there because you see the effects of it, but but you can't really see it and you don't know what to call it and you don't want to do with it. So it just ends up being like uh, background noise, like white noise in the background of your experience. Mm. And it'll surface. You'll see the effects of it. But a lot of times you'll be like, wait a minute, I just got really upset about that. Like, why? And then you might think about it for a little while or some friends might help you. And then you're like, okay, I feel better. And then you move on. Well, you didn't really deal with the actual issue. It's still under the surface sitting there. 
And so what the exercise that I developed that part of it was used on me, the exercises are designed to push it above the surface so that you see it. And you're like, oh, well, most of that stuff is that unintegrated information that's been stuck there because there were such negative experiences that the amygdala kept them from being integrated through the hippocampus, which is why the vast majority of people who have gone through the assessment that I've developed, part of the assessment is to talk about formative experiences. Mm. And the vast majority, like like upwards of 85% and higher of the experiences that were reported are all negative. Right. And so if you're listening and thinking, well, what is this assessment? We'll get to that in our next episode. Yeah. And so a lot of what you've talked about is these formative emotional experiences that are, leave their scars, if you will, on us as adults. And so help us understand more specifically what happens from zero to 18 that's so pertinent and how uh, parental figures play into this. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're born with an incredibly strong, powerful desire to attach. I mean, we are relational beings. Like literally, as soon as you're born, you're looking for somebody to attach to. And that never goes away as long as our hearts are beating. We are designed to attach to other people. And obviously, the the primary attachment figures during your formative years, because there's so much neural activity going on, play a really critical role in the person's development. And by formative years, you're meaning childhood. Yeah, your childhood, for sure. Yeah, formative years, uh, I mean, there's a longer thing here, but it's basically like birth to eight years old and then about like 12 to 18. And that's when our brains are forming and these experiences make their deepest impression that they're going to make. Yeah, totally. So back in the 50s, there was a woman named Mary Ainsworth who... Uh, developed an experiment called the strange situation. And she put children into a room that had like a one-way mirror kind of thing where they could observe. Put the children into the room with the mother or, or an attachment figure. Then while the mother was there, a stranger who the child had never seen before walked in and slowly approached the child, like kind of like did stuff and then moved a little closer and then did some stuff and moved a little closer. While the stranger was doing that, the mother left. This all happened within a few minutes. So it's not like they're like torturing the child, you know, but it's enough to bring up how the child is attached to its attachment figure. So then after a few minutes of being alone with the stranger, the stranger left and then the mother re entered again or the attachment figure re-entered and basically what she was looking at was how did the child reintegrate with the mother when she entered the room again and they saw three primary patterns one is the child would cry and immediately run to the attachment figure and the attachment figure paid attention to the cues and would soothe the child and the ch- and within seconds the child was back on the floor playing again you know so it's kind of like Uh, attachment figure is like home base. As long as the home base is there and you can touch it and it responds to your signals, then you're secure. Does that make sense? So the child's anxious. They run to mom, dad, whoever that might be. They're comforted and then they feel okay to go back out into the quote unquote world again or the room. That's right. Okay. Then the other two categories, they're both broadly categorized as insecure. And one of them was insecure ambivalent or insecure anxious. And what would happen is the child would cry 
and move toward the attachment figure, but physical touch with the attachment figure was hard or it was not natural or something like that. Typically, the attachment figure himself or herself was an anxious person or was more cold. And so the child would want to attach to the attachment figure, but the attachment figure was not responding to the child's signals. And so that created a greater anxiety in the child. Okay. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So that's, that's insecure, ambivalent, or anxious. And then a third category was the parent would enter in and the child, because the parent typically was cold and not responsive to the child's signals, then the child would basically avoid the parent. So when they walk back in the room, it's like they are not. It's really fascinating. The proximity of the child to the parent would remain where an attachment would be possible, but the child had also learned through experience that you're not a safe person. Mm -hmm. I want to attach to you, but I can't because you're not safe. So I'm just going to kind of like look at you out of the corner of my eye. Make sure you're still there, but keep a safe distance, so to speak. A safe distance, but not totally leave because I want there to be the opportunity for us to connect if you become a safe person. So we have these three categories, secure, insecure, ambivalent, and insecure. Avoidant. Avoidant. And then what happened was about 10 years later, people like saw this and were fascinated by them. It's huge in like childhood development. And so they started running this test over and over again. And then about 10 years later, they recognized a fourth category. And the fourth category is really tragic, but I think about 10 to 15% of the population fits into this category. But the fourth category was insecure, disorganized. And almost always, if somebody is an insecure, disorganized uh, attachment pattern, then there's been some sort of prolonged emotional abuse, Mm. physical abuse, sexual abuse by the attachment figure. So the child literally has a, it's a paradox in the child's mind. It's an unsolvable tension because while you have a, an innate desire to attach to your primary attachment figure, that attachment figure is dangerous. So they're no longer neutral. They're the ones causing you harm. Yes. The very person who's supposed to be your biological attachment figure is wounding you. And so they would see things like uh, children who would run to the attachment figure, be, be soothed by them for a minute, and then the child would sit back down and freak out again mm-hmm. because the touching of the parent brought up a lot of those experiences that had previously happened whether it was physical, sexual, emotional abuse, prolonged emotional abuse, which it's interesting. The studies out there show that prolonged emotional abuse to children has the same psychological effect as sexual abuse does, which is really tragic. But one of the saddest ones that I read was a child who uh, had such a strong desire to attach to her mother, but she knew that her mother was not safe. So she would move toward her mother, but she turned around and backpedaled toward her because she couldn't Mm. face her attachment figure. So that became the fourth category. So you have secure attachment, which is from a clinical standpoint is probably half the population. And then you have insecure attachment. There's three of those subcategories, ambivalent or anxious, avoidant and disorganized. And so help us put together what these four categories of attachment figures have to do with these developing years, these formative years. Yeah, well, because in the middle of those formative years, there's another attachment figure that you can't see, 
but everybody's talking about and everybody defers to. And people like they function around this attachment figure. They do rituals around it. And as a child, you're looking at this going like, what is going on? You know, and that attachment figure is called God. And so you can't see God. (laughs) So but especially in your early years, God is powerful. He is omnipresent. He's kind of everywhere. And uh, in the middle of this attachment environment that the child is already in with their primary attachment figure, they begin to form a psychological projection of who they believe God to be. So their parents normally, or whoever's caring for them, is their representation. That's their example that they have to model totally. off of, yep. of who is God. It forms the foundation for somebody's psychological representation of God because their parent is the physical. Right. They're the visible one. The visible one that they're looking at and they're the most powerful person in their life. And so if I can see you and mm-hmm. you're supposed to take care of me or this is how you're acting, that must be how God is. Yeah, right. And that's happening all in those formative years and it's developing this picture. Yeah. Of who you believe God to be. Yeah. And it's a very, like you said earlier, it's a very physical thing. There's actual like neural wiring in your brain that gives you a a propensity to relate to other people based on the relationship with your attachment figure. And there's no greater attachment figure in the human experience than God. Mm. And so as I hear you, I'm like, okay, we have all these things that we've just learned that these formative years from zero to 18 are, they impact us for the rest of our lives. Totally. Our parents or parental figures or whoever's cared for us during those years make a huge impression mm-hmm. uh, and they influence who we believe God to be. Yeah. And so help us connect these facts, this reality that you've learned through your project to spiritual maturity. Yeah. What does that have to do with being spiritually formed? Yeah, right. So Unfortunately, this aspect of discipleship and spiritual formation, people either don't know about it or it's totally ignored. What do you mean this aspect? Someone's psychological representation of God based on their attachment patterns that they formed during their formative years. People assume that when somebody is talking about God, people just assume that everybody else are thinking about the same God that that person's talking about. That is definitely not true. We're all talking about God, the God of Christianity, but... I'm not even talking about the objectively real God yet. That's a... I'm a thousand miles from him. Great. We are talking about the God that you believe in, right? The psychological projection of the way you believe God to be. And what is really obvious when you get into all of this is that we are almost certainly not talking about the same God because your God is colored and formed in an environment that I never experienced. Mm. And also I don't have your brain. So true. While, (laughs) so while creedally and doctrinally, we are talking about the same objective reality, who is God, the way that we image him is very different. So So two people sitting over coffee talking about quote unquote God are almost certainly not talking about the same being. Make that a little bit more tangible for us. So you and I can agree to Watermark's doctrinal statement on God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy spirit. Check, check, check. Yep. He is one God in three persons. We affirm all of that. 
what do you mean that we're talking about different gods? What would that look like? Your God versus my God, yep. quote unquote. Somebody can grow up in a secure environment where they had a really solid relationship with their father. And out of that relationship with their father, they formed a pattern of relating where they read something like First John 4, 8, God is love. And they very easily emotionally accept that because that has been their experience, mm. right? And so when somebody says God is love, then they're like, oh, yeah, like, I love it that God is love. Like, that's so awesome. It's easy for me to believe that because their psychological projection of who God is fits very easily based on the fact that they've experienced a secure attachment environment. And it's easy for them to project that emotionally, right? Somebody else grew up in an insecure, disorganized environment where perhaps their dad beat them or sexually abused them, or maybe their dad died and he was just totally absent. Mental health issues, I mean, all kinds of craziness going on. And that person is going to read 1 John 4, 8 very differently than the person who grew up in a secure environment. They're going to read God is love and... That's either going to strike in them on the far negative side, fear, mm. because of the way people have, quote unquote, loved them in the past, or it's going to create an enormous amount of emotional tension because in their minds, they hear First John 4, 8, God is love. And they're like, okay, I believe that, but everything inside of them from an experiential standpoint is going, I don't believe that. So your intellect is now fighting your emotions. It totally is. Yeah. Which creates an enormous amount of angst in somebody. And so when you sit those two people down mm. and they're having a drink of coffee together, talking about quote unquote God, they're not experiencing the same thing. D does that make sense? Yeah, completely makes sense. And so that is now going to influence how they everything. <laughs> <laughs> dun, dun, dun. I mean, it literally, sh it shapes the lens that you view the world through. And so you take somebody who had a secure environment and had relatively mild formative experiences growing up, or maybe they had really positive ones. And those people start to practice spiritual disciplines like Bible study, prayer, scripture memorization, evangelism, meditation, fasting, the discipline of stillness and and slowing and, you know, they're in community with people and they are going to be in an internal environment that is going to facilitate growth for them in easier ways, right? Whereas the other person who is really deeply wounded is going to hear, hey, you've got to read the Bible, pray, share your faith, memorize scripture, meditate on God's word, be in community. And they grew up with an attachment figure who was distant, who was emotionally unavailable, or was really demanding or critical. And those people are going to see that list of things to do, and they're going to go, oh, this is what I have to do in order for God to be pleased with me. Mm. And they're doing it subconsciously. They totally are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not like, oh, I'm thinking I have to work to earn God's approval, but that is like deeply ingrained. Yeah. No, if you, if you ask them, do you think you have to work to gain God's approval? Then what they're going to do is they're going to answer you with a cognitive answer, with a conceptual answer. They're going to go, no, I don't have to earn God's favor, but their experience is screaming at them otherwise. Yeah. 
Like Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says it's by grace, but yeah, they're but not living not their like experience. that. Uh-uh. Yeah. And those two things, again, create an enormous amount of tension in somebody. And it actually acts as a ceiling. I mean, this is the fundamental thesis of my entire research is you will not grow or mature beyond the ceiling that the health of your God image allows you to go. So, for example... We'll scale it out. Sometimes yeah. I use like a scale of one to 10. Yeah. Like 10's mature. One is like you were just born yesterday. Mature you know? meaning like my God image. I emotionally relate to God the way that scripture portrays him to be. It yes. is as true to who God is described in the Bible as it could be. Yeah. And that is increasingly my experience. Right. The love of God is not just something I think about or cognitively agree with. It's my ongoing experience. That's maturity. When your psychological projection begins to get closer and closer and closer to the actual objective reality, who is God? Great. All right. So that's maturity. If somebody is on that scale and the way they emotionally relate to God or their God image, their projection of him based on attachment patterns is at a health level two, then until you deal with that, you can do all of the religious activity you want You could be the most committed Christian with multiple PhDs in biblical theology and Christian counseling and all this kind of stuff. But until you deal with that, which is where the Holy Spirit is working, then you're never going to mature. All that activity is going to hit the ceiling and fall back down. Right. So for me, if you want a personal example, this looked like believing that God was distant or lacking compassion or he was more powerful than he was loving. And therefore, no matter what Bible study or prayer or community speaking into my life happened, that acted as my ceiling totally. because I could not get past that I believed God to be distant. And yep. as the Lord worked in my life as the spirit worked in my life and has begun to transform that image, that scale, it rises. You're right? growing. Yeah. yeah. And I think that, you know, you're a good example of, of this as well, that some of the conversations we've had in the past about where you're like, man, I just feel like I'm, I've plateaued or mm. I'm doing all these things, but I'm not growing. I'm frustrated. I've, you start to ask questions like, is this, is this it? Yeah. Is this, this is this really it? And all of that is evidence of the fact that you're on the right track, but you're being weighed down by something that's keeping you going only two miles an hour, right. you know, and you don't know it. Do you have some kind of subconscious idea, like some sort of subconscious awareness, but it's not in your face? Right. Well, this has been really helpful. We've spent a lot of time talking about the years from zero to 18, our formative experiences, how parents or other attachment figures relate to our spiritual formation, how we image God based on those people who were supposed to be taking care of us and how that now connects to spiritual formation. And so now in the next episode, we're going to get a lot more practical of the assessment that you developed yep. and, and how that can be helpful for people. Oh, yeah. And what I would say to leave this one is there's a lot of hope. Like, you're <laughs> don't, not, don't be sad. Yeah, no, you're, you're not stuck here, which is really amazing that God has saved and is saving. And it's great. Amen. All right. Well, we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for joining us, Nate. (laughs) You're welcome. There it is.